Uh, does he want to pitch for the Mets? <laughs> uh, considering uh, we're literally just throwing up anybody, <laughs> even if they have an ERA above five in AAA. Uh, Pete Alonso just won the home run derby. My God. That's actually usually not a great thing. Yeah. There. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 20th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. Still here in the undisclosed location. Loving it. How's your bunker? Have you have you come up from uh, underground yet? <laughs> yeah, you know, I went to the grocery store uh, briefly. The sunlight, it burns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. You're still celebrating the uh, Colin Morikawa win in the British Open? Uh, no, <laughs> but he is from around here. He's an L.A. kid from the Valley somewhere, I think. Burbank, <laughs> uh, Pasadena, maybe. It's pretty impressive to win one of those. That that tournament is so synonymous with like old man winning, like Tom Watson almost winning, and like crafty veteran Darren Clark. Uh, it's pretty impressive to win on your first try. Also, he's like this is not a this is not a quantifiable take. He's just like the most likable guy. I really like Morikawa. He's a fun guy to root for. Um, he just seems like a, I don't, I like him as a, as a new face of golf. Although I was also rooting for Jordan Spieth cause I, I am always rooting for Jordan Spieth. <laughs> yeah. I was rooting for Spieth too. I was rooting for Spieth too. He's just the best iron player in the world. And if you're the best iron player in the world, like Tiger Woods was, you're going to do well. I mean, he's, he's, his problem is usually putting, but if he puts well, it's over pretty much. And it's not a really long course because he's not super long either. And I love we're back as a golf pod. This is great stuff. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I miss this. We, we Get have, fired let's up, do the Jeff. rest. Get let's fired do up. the rest of the show. Should we go down the leaderboard? Um, that was it. There was a very small taste of uh, of golf until the Ryder Cup. So oh, we're not going to break down the 3M Open from the TPC Twin Cities this weekend. Come on, Indeed, guys. We are not. <laughs> on today's show, we'll take a look at what's new and what is unfortunately very. Very familiar about the Tokyo Olympics. Then we'll talk about the latest twists in the NBA Finals and what the results of a championship would mean for either Milwaukee or Phoenix. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The Tokyo Olympic Games start just later this week, which on the one hand, it's it's wild to finally be getting the Olympics after the IOC decided to wait a year and ride out the COVID-19 pandemic. On the other hand, the games are still very much in the shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is still very present, both here and in Japan. We're beginning to see athletes withdrawing from the games due to positive tests as well, including for Team USA, Coco Goff in tennis, and three-on-three basketball player Katie Lou Samuelson. On ESPN's highly questionable, Bomani Jones was pessimistic about the state of the games in relation to the pandemic. I I will never forget the moment that I knew that our lives were about to become hell was in 2020 when that dude, Dick Pound, what a name, when he came out and he was like, I don't think we're going to have the Olympics. And I was like, retro, we got a big problem. Guess what? We fast forward now like 15 months from then. Things aren't really much better. All right. Here's how bad it is in Japan, which is a country that does not have a high vaccination rate because we ignore in the United States. We got all these vaccines we ain't using. Everybody else can't even get them. They don't want these Olympics to happen so much to the point that Toyota is the official automobile of the Olympics. And they are not advertising on the Olympics in Japan because they read the room and understood that everybody thinks that this is a horrible idea. So let's talk a little bit about the state of readiness for the Olympics. Are things really as bad as they were last year? Or Jeff, are we just going to have to make the adjustment that having big sporting events during a pandemic comes with a whole set of problems that you can't really solve? I don't, well, for, for starters, I don't think things are as bad as last, I mean, last year, I mean, things were dire. They're doing a bubble. I don't think anyone's really done a bubble quite like this. They're also kind of operating Olympics in a state of emergency, which is just not a good look. So there's there's tons of problems. There's a lot of ways this can go wrong. 
Um, but it doesn't compare to last year. I mean, I, I think we talked about this, you know, a lot last year that this is like the worst possible thing yeah. it, it, for, to do in a pandemic, to take people from every country in the world and to put them in a confined space. And most of them are young. Uh, and we know how, uh, teenagers and 20 somethings are about the pandemic. There's a pretty good track record of, uh, not being great. And put them all in a blender and uh, not actually in a blender. That would be horrifying. Uh, <laughs> and, and hope for the best. Um, and, ho- and hope everyone follows the rules. Yeah, it's problematic. And I, I think, unfortunately, for Japan, it, no matter what happens, this will still be the pandemic games, which is obviously not 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 what they signed up for. Yeah, and, uh, you know, to the comparison with last year, I think one of the things also is at least sports has kind of learned how to put on uh, some of these big events uh, and, and manage it through the testing and the tracing, and now you do have the vaccinations, which is a big factor compared with last year. So hopefully some of those lessons can be applied. You know, if you look at cases in Japan, the seven day average right now, I guess through July 15th, that's the latest data that um, I could find, was about 2,500 cases per day over the past seven days. So if you look at the same time uh, from last year, July 15th, 2020, they were getting 416 new cases per day uh, over a seven day span leading into that. So that is a big difference. And I think part of why you're seeing sort of the idea that in Japan, because of the low vaccination rate, it is fair to say that things are worse uh, from the perspective of the virus than they were. Although, to be fair, the seven-day rolling average for deaths is 13 per day uh, over the last seven days, whereas in mid-July of last year, it was like one or zero, but, uh, you know, that's still a rise, but it, it's it's not near the peaks that you saw in Japan. In There was a peak in, in late May of 113 deaths per day over a seven-day span, and then uh, another sort of peak in February, uh, early February, that was nearing 100 per day. So uh, by the same token, those numbers are a lot lower than they they ever were in, in the U.S., you know, at, at the peak that it was here. And so I think, yeah, it's it's interesting to see this play out on kind of a different continental basis and, and kind of a different country basis from afar also, because the perception here, which is backed up by the data in terms of cases and deaths, even though those are rising slightly in the past um, couple weeks, is that things are a lot better here than they were certainly earlier uh, in this year or late last year uh, in, in terms of the numbers. Uh, so really, we're sort of saying like our mentality is is more like things are, are not as bad as they were uh, once upon a time. But then you think about how they are over there and they could probably make the case that uh, at least from a cases perspective, that things uh, are looking, you know, kind of bad again. So I think that that colors the interpretation of, of the numbers um, as we're sort of talking about the state of things. And what does the state of things mean? I mean, that's another way in which we've sort of had had to sort of process a lot of different information, a lot of conflicting information and and sort of try to come up with an idea of like, are we okay? That's sort of the essential question of the past um, year and a half. And the answer to that is not not fully and, and hasn't been for a long time, but it's various degrees of not fully. It's so interesting to me how the pandemic, you know, we talked about this a ton last year, when one league stopped that really every league stopped it but then when leagues started to play again everyone was going to play again and so i think now when we're looking at all these other sports leagues that have figured out how to do this and yes there are still some cases but you know it's pretty low and and you know the they're figuring out how to make vaccination rules work and whatever i think it'd be really hard then for any one league to be like or event to be like um never mind we're not going to do this because of all the money involved in sports so there there are all these voices right now who are saying that this olympics should not be going on this is you know we're still in the middle of a pandemic we still have you know all these cases the people of japan are don't I, either don't want it at all or very or are very conflicted about it but but this is part of this process of learning how to live with this disease, with this virus. And and I think that it's really changing my my view on just like living my life, knowing that this is happening. You know, for a long time, it was like, well, we just have to we're going to get through COVID and then we'll our lives will go back to normal. But I think 
we're realizing now that COVID is going to be with us maybe forever and there'll be just different ways to deal with it. We know how to treat it so fewer people die. There will be vaccines. There will be other shots. There will be controversy about that, but still it'll be a part of our lives now instead of something we were, you know, maybe we had a moment where we could have just ended it, but that passed and we can't. And now we're learning to live with it and we're learning how to play sports in it. At the beginning of the pandemic, every positive case was a panic, right? Um, Every positive case in sports made me panic about whether sports you know, would be able to be played still or should be or whatever. And now even in the Olympics, it's like, it's really sad when that Coco Goff can't play. It's really sad that Katie Lou Samuelson won't be able to play. She was vaccinated. So that makes it like also really sad for her dreams. But for her health, it's fine. She's going to be fine. I think the thing no one wants to say is that these Olympics, they should have just canceled them. I mean, that would make the most sense. It's very hard what they're trying to do. And obviously, there's a huge amount of money involved. You know, $50 billion or whatever went into this. But also, it was really important to Japan. You know, after after the earthquake and the Fukushima, the meltdown, you know, that that's when they, they put in this bid and or won this bid. And they, they really wanted something to rally the country around, which was, you know, this devastating national disaster. And it, it's very, you know, kind of like you look back to the 1964 Olympics. That was incredibly important to Japan. It was a really like emerging on the international scene following the war, you know, what, 20 years after the war. And it was a big deal. And I think they saw this as like their big moment, like reemerging as a, you know, a healthy, powerful country. And, and now they're dealing with this. So I, I do kind of understand beyond the money, the politics involved and why Japan is so intent on having it. I mean, look back to a year, like, well, more than a year ago when you, Sarah, you were talking about all those leagues shutting down in March. Remember the Olympics didn't announce a postponement for like, what, another two and a half weeks or something yeah. like that? I mean, yeah. they were pretty stubborn about it. And obviously, you know, canceling would have meant a whole generation. A lot of athletes, most athletes only get one shot at this. And you're you're taking that dream away from an entire generation of a you know global Olympian. So obviously that's tough, too. But it, it does seem like considering the precarious state of the the virus around the world, it, it, it feels kind of reckless. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's hard to, I mean, I'm going to cheer on the U.S. gymnastics team. I'm going to, you know, you know, be watching the swimming and, and you know, watching for Katie Ledecky to break a bunch of records and um, set new records, whatever. And it's, it's really, it's so incongruous to do that while knowing, you know, maybe this shouldn't be happening. And that it's like... I, sort of a good point for why canceling instead of postponing would have maybe been the right thing to do to not put fans in that position either. Although I also will say, I think that this, the pandemic has like in so many parts of our culture and the world, it's really laid bare the problems with the Olympics, the, the problems with having everything in one place, the enormous cost on one host city, as we've talked about, you know, and I do wonder if, if, holding them in a pandemic will make will bring about any change or if the yeah. IOC will just keep on going the way it always goes and, and not really and just refuse yeah, to. <laughs> I think probably the latter. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about about the games themselves, about the the medals that will be won and the and the sports that will be played. We obviously expect Team USA to put up a good showing. We have Simone Biles after all. Uh, but Neil, you did some work to estimate just what the US can expect in its medal count, which we will begin tracking on Friday on the site. Where are you expecting Americans to land? Well, so it's important to note that this is not really a, a forecast in the same sense that we traditionally do at 538, where we sort of map things out based on past data and predict uh, some kind of probabilistic you know, prediction. That's not necessarily what I did here. All I wanted to do was sort of just tra- give some context to the traditional metal tracker. So, you know, at, at other outlets, you'll see a list of the you know, medals won by each country. It'll sort of update as the games go on and you can track who won the most. And uh, I mean, there's obviously that's useful. That's uh, that's a nice way to follow the games. But I always kind of come to it from the perspective of setting the expectation, giving context around that and saying, well, 
okay, so the U.S. has a certain number of medals and China has this many and so on and so forth. But how many should they have by this point? How many would we expect them to have? And how many should we expect them to have going forward based on whether the events uh, and the sports that they're good at or bad at are sort of front loaded or back loaded or, you know, when when things are happening in the um, ebb and flow of the Olympic schedule. So that's why we made this medal tracker that provides that context and basically just looks at the past uh, four Olympic cycles and looks at how often each country traditionally has won the gold, the silver, and the bronze when there has been a medal awarded in a given particular sport and event and applies that to the events that are scheduled this time and sort of says like, okay, well, based on the events that have been awarded medals so far, here's how many we would have expected the U.S. to have, here's how many they actually have, and here's how many we would expect them to have going forward. And so you can kind of look and see if uh, a certain country is running below expectations, above expectations, and sort of whether or not they can expect to pick up the pace going forward if they have events um, that are more favorable. So by that standard, you know, right now, before the Olympics start, or I guess technically they are starting today, even though the opening ceremonies is not until Friday, which is also just another one of those like, okay, do do whatever Olympics, fine. (laughs) But yeah, the the US would have uh, should expect something in the neighborhood of like 120, 130, that range of medals based on uh, their past performance. And I, I should say also that I did factor in home host bounce that uh, uh, countries get and the fact that previous um, hosts won't be getting that. So I sort of downgraded their previous numbers based on that. Uh, And then, of course, Japan's going to get a bump, uh, we would expect, based on that. I don't know how the difference of like not having the crowds and not, you know, uh, Mm. the the changes to this particular Olympics will affect that. I just used the traditional one, which I should shout out Bill Mallon from the uh, Olympedia, uh, which is a great Olympics encyclopedia site. It's kind of like the um, Olympics reference type of site that if you go there, you can look up basically every outcome and event and and, uh, athlete in the history of the Olympics, (laughs) both summer and winter. Yeah, Yeah. it's great. And and he was very gracious to share his data for uh, the historical data to help us build this and also his research on the the bounce effect and and all of that. So those are some of the adjustments that we put in there. But yeah, the U.S., I mean, it's not going out on a limb to suggest that the U.S. would have the most medals of any country. They had the most medals of anyone in Rio uh, with 121 last time. Uh, number two was Great Britain at 67. So uh, right now, project- projecting or whatever we want to say, it's not it's not a true forecast, but <laughs> sort of setting the expectation at some uh, 128.5 is the number that we have uh, going in, including 50.9 golds uh, is is the number that you have. So and then China next at 83.1, and then Japan at 71.7, uh, and Great Britain at 64, and the ROC at five uh, 52.4. I love and our, our, we have this like a beautiful interactive that um, dashboard that's coming on Friday where you'll be able to kind of track that and see the expected medals and where people are as they fall see the shift as it as it happens um, over the course of the two weeks the only time the US like in the post-Soviet era didn't win a summer games total medal, medal count was Beijing right Yes. And it was close in Beijing, too. It it was like both countries were in the hundreds. And that obviously was a big talk about the host country. I mean, that's like the quintessential host country bounce um well so the u.s even even in 2008 the u.s had more total medals than china did 112 to 100 but china had more golds they had 48 the u.s only had 36 yeah the u.s does always tend to really kind of rise to the top of these because we have such great i think summer olympic in particular like we we have perennially just like the most incredible uh, athletes and teams you know when it comes to like gymnastics and swimming and all that and so I would definitely expect track and field expect that to continue frankly what it what it always has been is a testament to our women's sports and the system we have cultivating female athletes that a lot of countries don't have I mean it just doesn't exist so for all the shade people will occasionally throw on title nine or something like that this is a testament to at least comparative opportunity that female athletes have in this country to to I think to other countries in the world. 
And I would say, too, to that, you know, the U.S. has helped in pushing the Olympics to be more gender balanced. Now, the the Olympics are touting this as the first gender balanced Olympics. They're kind of it's not like it's not a perfect 50 50, but it's very close um, in terms of women's events versus men's events, which is pretty cool. And there are some gender neutral teams like the, that teams don't need, need to have a certain number of men and a certain number of women that teams can be sort of mixed to whatever in, in certain sports. In doing all this research, like come across a lot of the all the different sports that are that are, you know, not gender specific. And that's really fun, including we'll talk about this, a couple of the new Olympic sports. So there are four brand new Olympic sports this year, skateboarding, karate, sports climbing and surfing which are all going to be really fun. We have videos going up on the site um, explaining how how those are judged, how to watch them like a pro. Which of those are you guys most ex- excited for? Surfing. Well, obviously. Oh. <laughs> Surfing, really? Neil, what was Neil going to say? <laughs> I was going to say, obviously, skateboarding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will know my longtime love oh, yeah. of okay. that sport. Um, we have an interactive up on the site right now that is um, has like video clips of tricks, skateboarding tricks, and you give them the score you think they would earn as a judge, and then you can see what the judge actually gave them and also see how other people um, judge them, which I think I thought was very fun, and I was very bad and did not know how to judge those tricks. I was like, um, they all look super cool to me. Like, I don't understand. Why wouldn't they all get yeah, perfect Yeah, well, to, to be fair, yeah, they, we, we sort of set it up because they have it as a uh, zero to 10 scoring system. So you're like... Well, that looked like kind of a normal skateboard trick. So I'm going to give it a five. And then the judges gave it like an 8.1. And you're like, oh, right, because these are super good skateboarders. So they're obviously going to be much better right. than a five. So a five <laughs> would be like, I don't know, someone that, that maybe didn't qualify for the X Games or, or didn't qualify for the Olympics, but finished last in the X Games or something. Yeah, or like a two is like me no i'd get a one like i'm just like okay she's standing she gets a one well, congrats how's, sarah. how's your how's your how's your tray flip sarah let me tell you how my 360 is can you ollie i cannot ollie uh-huh. <laughs> but i can clap loudly when someone else ollies jeff why are you excited about surfing i no i just think it's cool i mean it, first of all i love anything that's weather dependent and <laughs> they and they you built like the this chaos in. is what you like. I love the unpredictable chaos of this. And I remember they tried to have it in Long Island one time, a big event, and like they just couldn't get the waves, and it was like a big disaster. And like, I, so that's not a great story for surfing. But it, I do love how they're they're at the mercy of the gods in terms of like how successful uh, it it will be, and, and or or what will be in store. And I don't know. I don't know that much about surfing, but I certainly will enjoy checking it out. And, you know, our best surfer's named John John Florence. That's an amazing name. I'm on board with that. I do love, like, in the schedule of events for the Olympics, surfing has, like, okay, here's the day that it's going to be on. Unless it can't be, and then it'll be on the next day. <laughs> Unless it can't be. There's like four days. And I, as as someone who needs to pay attention to that for when it's running, as we show that, that's really annoying. Great stuff. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you just love chaos. All right. Well, opening ceremonies for the Olympics are on Friday. Uh, as Neil mentioned, competition starts like tonight. There are softball games. Olympic late, late softball, yeah. which is the first time I think that um, a sport other than soccer is the one that kind of kicks off the, uh, at least among team sports, uh, the event. And so I'm excited for softball yes. to come back. And in fact, I even uh, crunched the wins above replacement for softball women's softball players at previous Olympics. Yes. Uh, j- just want to <laughs> shout out Lisa Fernandez who was the Shohei Otani of uh, women's softball back in the day. And we'll have a story saying that exact thing in a very, very short time, yeah. Do you see who is on the uh, Team USA baseball team, Neil? 538 legend and favorite Edwin Jackson. Another jersey. Oh. Put another jersey in Edwin yes. Jackson's. Yes. Add, add, add anything that counts, Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we can uh, we will obviously be keeping a close eye on the Olympics as they get started, but we can take a break for now. In a moment, we'll come back to talk about the NBA finals. Game six of the NBA Finals is tonight. The Bucks could win it all at home, ending a half-decade championship drought in Milwaukee. Or if the Suns come through, they would take the series back to Phoenix for a game seven that might see their first title in the team's 53-year history. We're in an exciting spot where both universes are still possible. But on ESPN's first take, Max Kellerman offered a corrective take about why these teams are here in the first place. But I'm sorry, I have to be honest, and I hate to be this dude. I know the man in the arena, I'm just being the critic, and I don't want to rain on everyone's parade. Both the Suns and the Bucks are extremely lucky to be in these finals. And they are only in these finals because, and only because, uh, the Nets and the Lakers and the Clippers suffered catastrophic injury to their best players. That's why. Without that, neither one of these teams sniffs the finals. In fact, neither one of these teams makes the conference finals. That said, if Giannis wins the whole thing, having played through the injury, having not had one bad game, basically showing up like Shaq every day, the headlines will be that he has reached all-time greatness. Mm. He's a future Hall of Famer, and he is a champion. Okay, whenever anyone says, I hate to be this dude, like – you can choose not to be this dude. <laughs> you don't dude. have to be no, this dude. No, you don't have to. There's no rule saying, I have to be this dude right now. If you hate to be it, just don't do it. All right, so Neil, can we quantify this take at all? Is it a done deal that a healthy Nets would have beaten the Bucks, a healthy Lakers or Clippers would have beaten the Suns? No, I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's it's not quantifiable in the in the sense that, I mean, we do have probabilities archived from the past of of winning the finals but those tended to have the suns uh, uh and the bucks really high especially the suns there there was a time in which the nets were the favorite uh especially after they picked up james harden and the clippers were up there too so uh, you know it's not uh it's not totally wrong to say that the the health before all of their health problems kind of came crashing down on them they were the favorites and and statistically we can kind of point to that but at the same time, the Suns picked up the slack on that pretty quickly before those other teams were eliminated. It's not fair to kind of paint it as like, oh, well, these are sort of the teams that are left over by default at the end of the season uh, because all of these other super teams went down. I, I just think that that's such a it's not a surprising characterization of this season, but I think it's a very inaccurate one. And uh, we've talked this whole time about how these teams, we we should not have slept on them. You know, it's it's funny that people are still trying to kind of sleep on them. I almost wonder whether it's like to provide cover for the takes that, you know, haven't aged well about, uh, you know, the Suns and, and the Bucks by saying like, oh, well, I would have been right if all these injuries hadn't happened. You know, it's sort of like a very self-serving way, way to cover yourself in retrospect. But no, I don't. I don't think that it's at all clear that those teams would have beaten the 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 Bucks and the Suns at full strength. I don't know. I just. I also think like these kinds of counterfactual takes drive me insane because there's no. You can just say it, and you don't have to really prove anything and whatever. But the Nets played the the big three of the Nets played a total of seven regular season games together. This is not the nets we got in the playoffs were not like some oh no they just got destroyed by injuries <laughs> at the worst possible time. No, this was the this was the team. Like this is what this we was them. Yeah, this, this is who part. they this are. This is their identity. Part. Yeah. If you want to say it, like to make it make it about the Lakers, a team that right. did have health and won a championship or won the last championship, but you're totally right. That Nets team does not exist. And and honestly, yeah. I mean, the Lakers, the way, you know, yes, Anthony Davis had an injury there in, at the end. The Lakers played themselves into a seven seed over the course of the regular season. I don't think you can just assume they were going to turn it on and win the title. They did not look like a title winning team. And the Clippers... Are you kidding me? Saying that the Clippers had Kawhi not gotten hurt were obviously going to win? Does no one remember what happened last year? Like, the Clippers are not a sure thing. 
the Clippers are cursed. Remember, like they were going to figure out a way to lose one way or the other. And also Kawhi getting hurt is not some kind of like fluke, you know, oh my (laughs) God, this is like, has never, we've never seen this before. Right, yeah. (laughs) Also that, yes. Um, I wanted to talk a little, just a little bit more about, but the one other kind of amazing aspect of this finals, which is that one of these teams, one of these cities is going to end its drought. Neil, a little while ago, you wrote about the, the cursed sports cities with very long title droughts. Where do Milwaukee and Phoenix rank among those franchises that have waited the longest for a championship? Yeah, our, our wonderful copy editor, Santul Nurker, and I looked at uh, basically cursed cities. This was when the Hawks were still around. So Atlanta is the ultimate cursed city. I think <laughs> that has been kind of detailed at length. Yes, they won a World Series uh, with the Braves in 1995. But aside from that, really, uh, they, they've fallen short of expectations in a lot of different creative ways. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this year kind of fits into that uh, as well. I mean, they went deep into the NBA playoffs, but uh, fell short. Whereas Milwaukee, they, they don't have quite the same you know number of entries, I think, in terms of expected championships uh, over the years as, uh, as an Atlanta or even a Phoenix. Phoenix has had a lot of cracks at this uh, as well. But the fact that they have not won a championship since 1971 uh, it's it's one of the longest active droughts in NBA history, uh, you know, in the NBA right now, but also in terms of all time NBA uh, history. And you just think about the the teams that they had over the years, like in the 1980s. Uh, people don't remember that the Bucks were actually a really good team. They were yeah. like a contending franchise at that time, but they just could not get over the hump in the East because you had so many other good teams from that era, all time great teams like the Celtics. And like uh, the Sixers at, at, at one point. Uh, and, and so Milwaukee was always sort of found themselves uh, struggling to kind of make it over the hump. And they've had this resurgence recently because they went through a long period where they were basically just almost like a guaranteed first round out. Uh, they <laughs> lost in the first round every time they made the playoffs from 2003 until 2018, they lost in the first round. Uh, now, there were some years in there where they didn't make it at all, so it wasn't a consecutive streak or whatever, but you know, to finally see them with Giannis, and really since Budenholzer took over, they, they found like a new gear uh, in the in the post-Jason Kidd era to, to be able to build themselves up to be a team on the cusp of a title is really special. And then for Phoenix, they have a 53-year drought going on right now, and you know, I know know that whoever it this is one of those ones it's a little like the 2016 World Series not quite the magnitude of the Cubs drought uh, happening uh, but you know one of those situations where whichever team loses is going to just be devastated because mm-hmm. they came so close and the um the drought will continue for them but whichever team wins will just go crazy because it really does it it, it will be such a special accomplishment and and such a testament to you know, the power of, of building something where it, it something didn't exist for a long time yeah. and being able to kind of create a championship caliber team out of um, the ashes of a really long drought. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting for, for whichever of these teams ends up winning it all. I take issue with Milwaukee's drought just because the Packers won the Super Bowl in 2011. someone has to say that's the big thing i think when we did talk about this uh, a couple episodes ago is that yeah the limitations of the how you judge who belongs what team belongs to a certain city or metro area is definitely comes into that so they've got the packers that's fair yeah two hour drive i've (laughs) it's taken me two hours to get from manhattan to east rutherford new jersey to go to a (laughs) jets game so Mm. I thought you were going to go for an L.A. It took you two hours to go uh, five blocks. No, he's a true L.A. fan. He doesn't bother going to the games. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, does L.A. have football teams? Are we sure about that? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll Google that after oh, after this episode. But come on. Pac, I, I know things get complicated with Wisconsin and Minnesota and the Packers, but it's pretty close. <laughs> It is pretty close. And it's not like there's a Milwaukee NFL team. 
They are you different know, like, metropolitan statistical areas. We can only work with the data we have in front of us. I'm that just is saying, the truth. Just saying. Yeah. Yes. No, it is. Yeah. Yes. Next time, next time, I think we'll use that. Like, um, what was it? It was Facebook uh, precinct level data that figured out the most popular team. Although then it will be like all of the country has some kind of Cowboys fa- yeah. underlying Cowboys yeah. fandom and Yankees fandom. Nobody wants that. It's a real shame the '82 Brewers didn't win. With Robin Meow and Paul Molitor on all cylinders. Fun fact, my husband was uh, five years old and he thought they did win. He didn't know until much later that they had not won that World Series. Everyone How was much so, later? Every, I know. Like months? Not like 30 years, was like, but like a few wait, years. Wait, years? <laughs> yeah, years? He was five. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. What was happening? Was he being told they did win? Did he go to bed? No, like everyone was Talk so about gaslighting. Everyone was so happy that he just assumed everyone was so happy that they were in the World Series that he like just never really realized that they didn't win it until he was a little older. Not like not like until he was 35, but like until he was like, you know, 10 maybe. So then how did how did he find out that they hadn't did someone tell him or did he stumble across like some encyclopedia that talked about the 82 se- uh, season and then looked at it and was like i'm sorry what <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question and i'm not actually sure how he figured that out i'll have to i'll have to find out it would be really funny if he sent in some kind of like correction to like a newspaper that mentioned uh <laughs> that they didn't win and was like excuse me i happen to know they won this it's <laughs> like yeah. i've got bad news for you <laughs> Sorry, kiddo. They didn't win. <laughs> As the newspaper Better editor luck next chomps time, on his cigar. Champ. Yeah, exactly. One way or another, we'll have an NBA champion by this time next week. But let's take a break and then we'll be back in just a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. What do you have for us, Neil? So I want to talk about a very special uh, event that is happening this week in the world of hockey that will determine which players will become your favorite players, Sarah. Uh, so By exciting. which I am talking about the NHL uh, Seattle Kraken expansion draft, uh, which will be on Wednesday at uh, 5 p.m. Pacific. I'm going off of the uh, Seattle local uh, newspaper here. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so <laughs> the, the expansion draft, uh, which I want to talk about expansion drafts as as a larger concept in a second. So the nuts and bolts of this one in the NHL, and this is the second one that they've done in the past few years. They obviously had the, the Vegas Golden Knights come into existence recently as well. But essentially, the the expansion draft involved all of the other teams listing which players that they were protecting from the Kraken's grasp and then which ones they sort of left available. Uh, And the rules around that were that every team had to list as available uh, one defenseman and two forwards who are under contract uh, next season and played in at least 40 games last year or 70 games over the previous two years, plus a goalie who's also under contract for next season. And they could protect seven forwards, three defensemen, and one goalie, or eight skaters and one goalie. So it could be whatever number of uh, forwards versus defensemen that you have. Uh, and then there's a lot of stuff around there about the the free agency status of players that are uh, protected or not. So teams didn't need to protect unrestricted free agents. But if the Kraken select those players, those players can just sign with anybody that they want in like a week. So there's not that much upside to that. Uh, But anyway, so I wanted to go through the list and just look at which players were the best ones that were made available and some of the big names and which ones might not matter that they were left available. So, for instance, Alex Ovechkin uh, of the Capitals, future Hall of Famer, of course, and one of the best players ever, he was made available. So you might think, oh my God, are the Kraken going to take Alex Ovechkin? No, because he fits into that unrestricted free agent category. He probably will just immediately re-sign with Washington uh, if they were to take him, and so it would be sort of a wasted pick. The same goes for some of the other guys like Dougie Hamilton uh, of the Hurricanes, Taylor Hall, who 
picked things up uh, in, in his performance after going to the Boston Bruins in a trade. So, uh, Gabe Landeskog of the Avalanche. So some of these guys, they have great numbers from last year, but they are not practical to take. Uh, the best player on the available list in terms of goals of replacement from last year was Mike Smith, who was a goalie for the Edmonton Oilers. A little long in the tooth, but uh, he had a great season. Also, Chris Dreger of the Florida Panthers, who had a really good season for them uh, and stepped up when Sergei Bobrovsky played poorly. He was left available. Uh, we saw with the, the Vegas draft, when uh, they were able to pick up Marc-Andre Fleury, they were able to get a goalie who eventually won the Vezina Trophy as the best goalie in the league just a couple years later through the expansion process uh, and that was part of how they were able to kind of kickstart their franchise and so one of the one of the questions about this draft uh, is how many lessons the rest of the league learned from that Vegas draft because Vegas was unprecedented in the fact that they were able to immediately step in and contend and they almost won the cup they went to the Stanley Cup final in their first year of existence that's an incredible story and and, uh, we wrote about at the time that they were the far and away the most successful expansion team in the history of pro sports uh, certainly North American major pro sports to the point that like there's not even really anyone else who can kind of compare but also I think that that was kind of a product of the fact that the NHL was doing this for the first time in the salary capped era and that a lot of teams sort of saw the expansion draft and the unprotected process that that list uh, as a way Way to put guys out there that maybe they regretted signing or had a lot more years and a lot more dollars left on their contract and they didn't want to keep paying them, but they were still good players. They just weren't, uh, in the opinion of the the team that were exposing them, you know, worth that money. But Vegas, starting from scratch as they were, looked at it and was like, "Hey, we we don't have any players right now. We're happy to have these guys. You know, uh, we'll we'll pay them that amount. You got to pay somebody, right?" So I'm I'm curious as to how that will play out. Also, one of the things we saw with Vegas was uh, a lot of the sort of backroom deals and agreements that were made before the expansion draft between them and other teams. Of oh, hey, you exposed this guy. But we won't take him if you give us this other, uh, you know, asset in the process. So they were able to sort of siphon off uh, uh, perks and, and, uh, you know, more favorable deals in other ways by using the expansion draft to their advantage. And that's something that Seattle undoubtedly has been kind of on the phone trying to work those things uh, for for the past few months, I think, uh, at this point. Uh, But this is the second NHL expansion draft, like I said, uh, in the past couple of years or handful of years. But really, it's rare to see expansions happen and expansion drafts happen in pro sports this century. For instance, the last time that the uh, the NFL added a team was in 2002. The Houston Texans joined uh, and and became uh, the 32nd franchise. Uh, In the NBA, we haven't seen a new expansion team since the Charlotte Bobcats, who then became the Hornets through an incredibly convoluted process with the Pelicans, we don't have to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, is that that team, in in reality, they were an expansion team for the 2005 season, even if their franchise lists are a little bit convoluted because of that whole city franchise swapping uh, situation. And then in Major League Baseball, we haven't had an expansion team join the ranks since 1998 uh, when we when we got the, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays and the Arizona Diamondbacks. So it is rare to see expansions happen at all uh, and, and certainly rarer than it was in earlier eras of pro sports because we saw a lot of expansions happen in previous eras of sports, um, particularly from the 1960s through the 1990s. Uh, It it was happening all the time. Uh, And so expansion drafts in the current environment, especially post-COVID, you know, that that kind of um, changes a lot of teams' financial um, calculations around it. But even in the era of salary caps being added and new rules being added and, and, you know, player development strategies changing, I think it's fascinating that 
A, we've gone so long without a new expansion uh, happening. There have been relocations, and those seem to be maybe picking up steam more in recent years. Uh, And we might even see the Oakland A's pending a vote that happens today change cities as well. Uh, But not so much of the adding new teams to the the club. So uh, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about just the idea of expansion drafts. Is the way that the NHL... Uh, is doing it is that a good way to conduct it are there certain loopholes that maybe they should think about closing up or what's the best way essentially if you were in charge of a league and you need to add a new team to it and somehow those that team needs to get players from the existing team somehow what's what's the what's a good way to conduct an expansion draft this is important too because I'm pretty sure the WNBA is going to expand within the next couple of years. So this is, we could we could decide the blueprint right now for how how leagues do this going forward. <laughs> what would you do, Jeff? Uh, I think they need these teams to be successful right away. I think they need every team to be successful. <laughs> um, you know, they're always kind of in a precarious financial situation. Uh, they're not the NFL or the NBA. In the NFL, I think you can have a maybe tilt the rules of the expansion draft a different way and just have that team be horrible um, and let uh, David Carr get sacked 60 times in the first season. <laughs> or whatever. Wasn't good for David Carr's career. But, um, you know, that team will still be popular, the NFL team. It's, it's a little bit different. Whereas I think having a team like Vegas come out and hit the ground running was great for that franchise and, and ultimately was good for – the NHL, so good for all franchises. So I think this is the right way to do it. And they, you know, looking at the Kraken, I mean, first of all, like every defenseman or goalie above the age of 30 seem is seemingly available. <laughs> uh, you know, Shea Weber and uh, Mark, Mark Jordana, like guys who are like pretty established stars. But it, it seems like teams like went out of their way to protect youth, rightly. So it'd be interesting to see if the Kraken try to get some star power or they actually build this team strong. One thing I saw is that, you know, one of the biggest stars, Vladimir Tarasenko, who won, won it out of St. Louis, uh, I was just reading there's a chance they may do a sign-in trade, which is pick Tarasenko and then immediately ship him to another team for, you know, a bigger haul, um, which is interesting. I wanted to ask about that because that's something Vegas – Vegas expanded when they when they drafted their team they did they took on some contracts and then they traded they made some trades they they traded both picks and and players and and ended up you know really building through that way is that something that we should expect the Kraken to do too do you think that they will like essentially be a broker (laughs) for other teams and and moving some of those contracts I think so, because the one thing that's not available to them is youth and young star power. Up and down, teams went out of their way to really guard their their young talent. So if they want young talent, which any team should want, I think that would be something they would pursue. Okay, so then my question here is, should I expect Carey Price to be on my Seattle Kraken? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of good goalies available, and there's a lot of good goalies. There's like three cup-winning goalies available in Holtby, Murray, and I don't remember the other one off. Oh, Jonathan Quick. So there's plenty of options with goalies. It's I guess it sort of depends on if there's anyone else on the Habs they would rather have. Yeah, and goalies are so weird. Like, (laughs) you know, we've talked about this in the past. But I could totally see him being sort of the following that Marc-Andre Fleury blueprint and, you know, carrying them, essentially, especially if he plays like he did in the playoffs. Uh, But of course, goalies are super unpredictable. And that's something that we kind of harp on all the time. So that could be that could end up not being the pick that it seems like on paper. But again, to your point, Jeff, there's a lot of guys out there that maybe are coming off. They're like bigger names higher priced coming off maybe bad seasons or they're injured they were injured or something like that uh and, and you know Tarasenko uh and uh Weber and some of these guys fit uh some of those categories so you are really picking up like somebody else's used merchandise uh and and hoping that you sort of get get the best version uh of them rather than um have it be you know a burden and Vegas really hit on a lot of the bets that they made, no no uh, <laughs> casino pun I intended. Mean, 
Really? No pun intended. Really? <laughs> not not until it was uh, in my brain as I was saying it. But anyway, yeah. Like if you think about Vegas. I'm also curious as to, like, that's the sample that we have. That's the data point that we have recently of how this can work out in spectacular fashion. Uh, and you can really jumpstart a franchise quickly. Uh, and like you said, Jeff, it's in the NHL's best interest for these franchises to really make a splash uh, immediately. Uh, and you don't want a situation like the poor, late lamented Atlanta Thrashers where, you know, they get off on a wrong foot. They pick Patrick Steffen, who's best known for blowing an empty net goal that turns into a game time goal at the other end of the ice uh, with their number one overall pick in the, their first draft. And, and things are just downhill from there. You don't want that type of situation to play out in Seattle. Uh, so it's in their best interest to maybe set up a expansion draft process that kind of favors the the expansion team. I don't know how fair that is to the other teams when you sort of sit there and you're like, well, they get to kind of pick from all these guys who are pretty good and and we got nothing. But that's just seems to be the way it is. And I'm wondering whether this is just unique to hockey uh, and and the way the salary cap, because it is a hard cap there's a lot more of a consideration made to, you know, term and uh, salary for the guys that are being left available. Whereas maybe in another sport, that's less of a consideration. uh, And and it's really just about the playing ability. And so, you know, baseball was doing an expansion draft tomorrow. Yeah, there'd be some bad contracts on that unprotected list for sure. But maybe it wouldn't be players that you could see as potentially contributing so much right away uh, as we're seeing in some of these hockey drafts. Yeah, the game aspect of this that's like, you know, that you're you're constructing a team and there's the, the analytics involved and the, the, the rules involved. It feels like a game. And I really, I like that. I think that's really fun. Also, part of the reason I want to be a Kraken fan is because they are, um, they have built this pretty top-notch analytics department. So shout out to those guys going into the draft this week. Undoubtedly, they have been uh, a little busy, a little busy over the, <laughs> the past week or so, getting all of their plans and everything they've had to game out going on. So go Kraken. Yeah, no, that's that's another great point is that these past two NHL expansion drafts, but particularly this one with Seattle, are being played out in an analytics-heavy era that we definitely didn't have in baseball in 1998 and didn't have in the NFL in 2002. And we're just barely scratching the surface of in the NBA in in 2004 slash 2005. So we're really seeing, in addition to the particulars of the NHL's salary cap situation, we're also seeing a lot more brain power devoted to gaming out how these things will work and the kind of math behind Mm -hmm. it uh, from the front offices with these hockey expansions than has ever been seen. I think it's fair to say than has ever been seen in any expansion draft ever before. So that adds another whole layer of complexity on top of it. And because, you know, the other teams also are doing that and they also have their own analytics teams trying to figure out, like, are we going to get burned by, you know, making these particular um, decisions about who's on the protected list and who's available? Yeah, it's super fun. I think it's super fun and really interesting. This is uh, I think this is this is what's going to get me into the NHL. I really believe it. All right. Well, we can leave this here. Thank you for that, Neil. And that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. 